Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll visit the Jimenez Facio House Museum in St. Augustine. His will is what allows us to know what the house looked like in 1806 because the Spanish government was bureaucratic. We'll discuss the Underground Railroad to Pensacola. Most people were unaware that the enslaved also traveled south to port cities on the Gulf in an effort to escape to freedom. And we'll talk about Prospect Bluff. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Hello, my name's Wilfred. I live here as well. I bet it's not what you thought this was, was it? I mean, it's more than just sweet tea and magnolia trees. This is where it all happened, right here in the kitchen. Because see, for all these years, it was the food that brought people back time after time. And who was making that food? Ah, those invisible hands. That's historic reenactor and storyteller James Bullock portraying a late 19th century servant at what is now the Jimenez Facio House Museum in St. Augustine. Homes and buildings have been on this site since 1572, just seven years after St. Augustine was founded by Don Pedro Menendez de Avales. Terrine Rodriguez Boti is archivist and curator at the Jimenez Facio House Museum. Well, we do know that they were uh, very small structures. They were mainly built of wood. Um, as you know, this house is built of coquina. And we have uh, actually the title for all of the land from first from the 1570s, and then of course 1586 when everything is burned down by Francis Drake. That's when this street appears first on a map. That's why we say that the Aviles Street, which at that point was Hospital Street because the Spanish hospital was in the corner, is the oldest street in the continental United States. The Coquina structure that is now the Jimenez Facio House Museum was built in 1798 during Florida's second Spanish period by Andres Jimenez. And he was married to a woman of Minorcan descent. Um, the Minorcans had come here during the British period as indentured servants to New Smyrna to work in a plantation, an indigo plantation. Indigo is very poisonous, and they were dying by the dozen. Finally, some of them, as it happened, uh, led by Francisco Pelicer, comes into St. Augustine and asks for political asylum. It is Juana Pelicer, Francisco's daughter, who marries Andres Jimenez, and he builds his house. They lived on the second floor, and on the first floor, he had a tavern. He also had a billiards room. We actually have the license for the billiards room. And he had what we will call a general store. Um, the location of the house is two blocks away from the bay. People will come into the bay, um, sailors, and they probably would walk into town looking for a place to eat and drink. And we think that probably the third floor or the attic was also used 
as quarters for people that will come into the tavern looking for a place to sleep. Um, he was a merchant, so he will have all this merchandise. Uh, we also have inventory of what he had in the store because when he died in 1806, there was an inventory done of everything that was going to be sold. On the first floor, also, there were two warehouses, which today are the west wing of the house. The Jimenez Facio House was in a prime location to offer food, drink, and lodging to travelers just getting off their boats at St. Augustine. Each of the quarters of the town had their own tavern. Uh, it's very European. If you've been in Europe, you know that they have their own bars, their own little grocery stores, their little general stores. It was the same in St. Augustine. St. Augustine is a very Spanish town. The town plan was, uh, was set up by Philip II in the 1580s. So it's still the same town plan. The, the town is divided in quarters, and every quarter will have their services. By 1806, Andres Jimenez, his wife Juana Pelicier, and two of their five children had died. Tarin Rodriguez Boti. His will is what allow us to know what the house looked like in 1806 because the Spanish were bureaucrats. The Spanish government was bureaucratic. There were inventories not only of all the merchandise of the house, but all the household goods. Plus, there was an inventory of the building. We know how many doors there were, how many windows, how much glass, how thick the walls were. That's why we know that the house was what it is today. And then there were two warehouses because it's spelled out in that inventory. St. Augustine and East Florida were transferred from Spain to the United States on July 10, 1821. This presented challenges to Spanish landowners like the Jimenez family. The family is a great example of what happens to families when the Americans arrive in 1821. You have some that decide that they don't want to deal with the Americans. They have no interest in learning a new language, a new culture, of having to practice a different religion. So they leave. And the government in St. Augustine, the Spanish government, encourages the people from St. Augustine to leave, and they offer land in Cuba. So you're going to find that a lot of people that were here in 1821 are probably living in Cuba today, which is really interesting. Then there are the other two that decide that they are going to chance it. They're going to stay in St. Augustine. They own property. They have been doing well. They are married. They have children. But then they leave for Key West. Because since these children are bilingual and they are adults now, they can now create roots, business roots between Key West and Havana. And that's what the oldest son does. And the youngest daughter marries into the family of the oldest son's wife. So again, this is a very Hispanic family. You marry within your same social circle and many times within the same families. So we see all of this played out. We do know until 1819 that the house was rented. But again, the Spanish leave in 1821. There is this huge fight between the Spanish governor and the American government because the Spanish government has been told to remove all the government papers to Cuba. And of course, the Americans are saying, you cannot do that. How are we going to find out who's here? Where are the censuses? Who's paying taxes? What are they doing? 
So in that interim of what is happening, we lose track of who is here in the house. We cannot find them in the legal papers. And it's not again until the 18, late 1820s that we start finding again what happened to the house. After Florida became a United States territory in 1821, the home became a boarding house under Margaret Cook. Roger Smith is executive director of the Jimenez Facio House Museum. Well, Margaret Cook and her husband bought a third of the property in 1826. He died in 1827, so now she's a widow owning a third in this property, and uh, she was the kind of lady that in 1828 she bought another third, and in 1830 she completed the sale. And when she did that, she turned the lobby is where the tavern used to be, the dining hall is where the pool table used to be, and then the west wing where the warehouses were became uh, divided up and compartmentalized into guest quarters. This stayed the family's area, although Margaret never stayed here. She was quite wealthy and had other properties uh, that her husband left her, and she hired uh, Elizabeth Whitehurst to run the property, and uh, the Whitehursts have uh, a significant history in town of their own. In 1838, Sarah Petty Anderson took over the boarding house when her home at the Dunlawton Plantation was burned down during the Second Seminole War. In 1855, Anderson moved to Tallahassee and sold the property to Louise Facio. In 1939, the National Society of the Colonial Dames in America in the state of Florida purchased the Jimenez Facio House, restored it, and transformed it into a museum. You look back on what they did, it's, it, World War II hadn't happened yet. Hitler still hadn't invaded Poland when they bought this house in 1939. The Great Depression was still on and nobody realized that the end was just around the corner. So they took a mortgage out, they took a real risk uh, when they bought this house, but that is the mission of the, the National Society of the Colonial Dames of America, is to buy historic homes uh, in historic settings and to, to keep the history of America alive by telling the stories through these houses. Since 1973, a series of archeological digs have been done on the property. Among the amazing artifacts discovered is a Caravaca cross about two inches tall. Yes, this is actually, Carl Halbert said, uh, the uh, retired city archeologist said, this is the most dug property in, uh, in St. Augustine. And in 2002, he found uh, a Caravaca cross, and it's a necklace pendant about that tall. It has a double bar for the cross, and it was commissioned in the 1660s by the Spanish Catholic Church to celebrate the end of the plague that had been ravaging Europe during the 1660s. When Roger Smith became executive director of the Jimenez Facio House in late 2019, he wanted the museum to be more inclusive. It was very important to me that we tell the whole history of the house and that we get into the background of the, uh, not only the enslaved servants who lived here, but there were free servants of color, you know, who worked in this house. I mean, you go from the second Spanish period, uh, being black didn't automatically mean you were a slave in the second Spanish period. Then, and then Louisa Facio owned the house from 1855 to 1875, which means she took this and kept it as a successful business from the times of slavery, through secession, through civil war, through union occupation, through reconstruction. So the people who, who were enslaved when she bought the house weren't enslaved when she died in 1875. So the house has seen a tremendous amount of American history in that regard. 
The new exhibit, I Lived Here as Well, looks at the lives of enslaved people and servants who worked at the Jimenez Facio House over the centuries. Historic reenactor and storyteller James Bullock portrays some of those overlooked people. Hearing that the property here was considering the untold side of history, there was this excitement of the discovery of, well, who was this person and who was that person? So it really hit me in terms of intrigue. I said, wait a second, this is new and long overdue. I felt most of us were, were stuck with generalities about a very long era of American history. And in reality, it's not gone with the wind and it's not Uncle Tom's cabin. In most cases, the truth was actually in the middle. So when I was contacted by Dr. Smith, uh, he told me about the house, and I said, well, gee, I would like to visit this third floor. I didn't know about it. And perhaps some people will find it odd, but as a room, the room began to speak to me. Maybe because it had been closed up for so long, I'm not sure. But I felt a very strong and deep connection to people who had spent part of their lives there. In addition to Bullock's portrayals, a permanent display of photographs and documents make up the I Lived Here as Well exhibit. That display is on the third floor of the museum where the enslaved people stayed, but more recently was closed to the public and used as storage space. These photos were by and large portraits of people who you never would have met or heard about. And the first one that was given to me was of a black musician in the Civil War era. And he was wearing a uniform. And I looked at the picture and I said, why, he looks very sad. And then we realized that he was probably in a band that was for the Confederates. They made him pose for that picture. They made him wear those clothes. They made him play those songs. And there was a sadness in his eyes that spoke volumes to me. The Jimenez Facio House Museum is at 20 Avalé Street in St. Augustine, the oldest street in the continental United States. Today's a big day. Frederick Douglass is coming to town and he's gonna speak at the Opera House. And I got tickets to see him and I'm not gonna miss it for nothing. Cause see, I can read a bit. I learns over at the Sisters of St. Joseph's and that's why I got me a new name. Wilfred, W-I-L-F-R-I-D, Wilfred. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, most people have heard of the Underground Railroad helping enslaved people escape to northern states, but the Underground Railroad also traveled south to Florida. 
Yes, in the spring 2014 issue of the Florida Historical Quarterly, Matthew Claven provides us with another example of local history with national and even international influence. Recent focus on black history has made most listeners aware of the Underground Railroad that secreted runaway slaves from the South into northern states and onto Canada. The Underground Railroad primarily affected slaves living in the Upper South. Most people were unaware that the enslaved also traveled south to port cities on the Gulf in an effort to escape to freedom. Professor Claven notes that records are sketchy and incomplete, but estimates that some 300 enslaved men and women attempted freedom through the port at Pensacola. Most stories of the use of this overwater railroad remain lost to history, but two drew national and international attention. With the acquisition of Florida by the United States in 1821, Pensacola shifted from its place as a dynamic port on the edge of the Atlantic world under the Spanish to the cotton economy of the American South. However, Claven notes, Pensacola subsisted on the margins of Southern society, where racially divisive institutions and cultural traditions developed more slowly and unevenly than throughout the rest of the South. Its residents were a miscellaneous assemblage of fishermen, pirates, traders, and soldiers of various ethnicities and races. It was also a gateway for fugitive slaves through the antebellum era. Now, Connie, Jonathan Walker was a principal figure in the Underground Railroad to Florida, right? He was. Jonathan Walker, a native of New Bedford, Massachusetts, a sailor and shipwright, first arrived in Pensacola in 1835 after a near-deadly voyage to Mexico's Gulf Coast in search of suitable land to establish a colony for freed slaves. You see, Walker was an abolitionist. Walker liked what he saw in Pensacola, the warm climate, the economic energy of the port, and the numerous public works projects underway. Several years later, he returned with his wife and their seven children. Walker was an engaging fellow, but he quickly became the subject of gossip and the object of white animosity because of his relationship with blacks. He rented a room from a black woman, employed blacks in positions considered unsuitable, attended an interracial church, and even opened his home to social interaction with black men. City officials warned him that his actions threatened the peace and safety of the town and that they could not protect him if his behavior led to violence. Walker did more than interact socially with blacks. According to the Pensacola Gazette, he determined that he would aid slaves to secure their liberty if opportunity offered. That opportunity came in July 1844 when several bondsmen working at the Pensacola Navy Yard approached him requesting his assistance in their escape. He agreed to use his boat to take the enslaved public employees to the Bahamas where they would be under British rule and not subject to return to the United States. On July 22nd, Walker and seven enslaved men, Moses Johnson, Charles, Phil, and Lynn Johnson, Silas Scott, Harry Scott, and Anthony Cartlett set sail. The three slave owners, Bird Willis, George Willis, and Marine Lieutenant Robert Caldwell, demanded that the federal government recover their property. 
Rebuffed by the commander of the Navy Yard, they wrote letters to President John Tyler and Secretary of State John C. Calhoun, both slaveholders, demanding action. The angry slave owners did not know that the federal government had already acted. Richard Roberts, captain of the wrecking sloop Eliza Catherine, detained Walker and his passengers off the South Florida coast and delivered them to officials at Key West. They were returned on separate vessels to Pensacola, where the enslaved men were returned to their owners. Two months later, Silas Scott, a man routinely described as trustworthy, respectful, and obedient, was arrested for suspicion of theft and incarcerated in the city jail. There, he committed suicide in a particularly gruesome and painful way. And Jonathan Walker's punishment occurred very publicly, and his actions soon brought him national and international attention, right? It did. Walker was chained to the floor of a very small cell in the city jail until his trial in November. Not unexpectedly, he was found guilty on four counts of stealing goods and chattels from their owners in United States District Court. He was sentenced to a $150 fine and court costs, to stand in the pillory in front of the courthouse for one hour, and to have the letters SS for slave stealer branded onto the palm of his right hand. The branding immediately ran into problems when the local blacksmith refused to make the required branding iron and refused to allow his forge to be used to make it. Eventually, another blacksmith was found to complete the work. U.S. Marshal Ebenezer Dorr escorted Walker into the prisoner's box, secured his hand, and branded him. The three slaveholders sued Walker for damages of $100,000, potentially ensuring that he would remain behind bars for life. Northern newspapers, especially William Lord Garrison's Liberator, championed Walker's cause. British abolitionists joined the crusade to free Walker. National and international support for Walker infuriated Southern slaveholders, who viewed the efforts toward his release as evidence of an international conspiracy to overturn slavery in the South. Despite their objections, abolitionists secured Walker's release and returned to Massachusetts. Several autobiographies were published of Walker's experience, including Trial and Imprisonment of Jonathan Walker at Pensacola for Aiding Slaves to Escape from Bondage. The cover of the 119-page book included a print from a photograph of Walker's hand with the SS on his palm. The story of Walker's ordeal became so popular that abolitionist poet John Greenleaf Whittier wrote a 52-line poem, The Branded Hand, in Voices of Freedom, 1846. In part, the poem reads, Then lift that manly right hand, bold plowman of the wave. Its branded palm shall prophesy salvation to the slave. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. A single cannon shot at Prospect Bluff resulted in hundreds of deaths. Holly Baker has more. From the introduction of slavery until the mid-19th century, runaway slaves, or maroons, formed their own communities away from slavery. 
The name maroon is said to be derived from the Spanish word cimarron, meaning escaped or wild. In the first decades of the 19th century, maroon groups created networks of settlements in Florida as imperial powers fought for control of the region. Historian Dr. Justin Iverson is the author of an article in the fall 2019 issue of the Florida Historical Quarterly Journal called Fugitives on the Front, Maroons in the Gulf Coast Borderlands War, 1812-1823. He told me more about the maroon community that formed at Prospect Bluff on the Apalachicola River near Tallahassee. White settlers, Anglo settlers, called the Negro Fort because of all the black people that lived there. We now know more that from the, the Maroons who lived there, uh, they called it Prospect Bluff, in part because they were prospering there. They're a very large, growing community, several hundred people that lived there. And for the most part, they fled to Prospect Bluff from uh, places like Pensacola or further north in, in southern Alabama and Georgia and then other parts of uh, Florida as far as St. Augustine or uh, right along the Suwannee River in north-central Florida. And they allied there uh, with British officers, uh, one being Lieutenant Colonel Edward Nichols, who was an abolitionist. And the goal for the British in the Southeast during the War of 1812 was to arm as many enslaved people and Native Americans as they could to sort of combat American forces in the region. And Lieutenant Colonel Nichols was an abolitionist. He was very avid about getting as many plantation slaves as he could to join him or Maroons, who were already freed, to sort of promote that cause. Known as Fighting Nichols, Edward Nichols was an Anglo-Irish officer with the Royal Marines. He arrived in Spanish Florida during the War of 1812 to recruit Seminoles and Maroons as allies against the United States. He arrived in Florida in 1814. He started uh, recruiting Native Americans and plantation slaves to join him, and then together they fled to Prospect Bluff or Negro Fort, where they began building the fort towards the end of the War of 1812. As that war ends, the British eventually lose and they have to evacuate. And so Colonel Nichols actually leaves behind several hundred of these uh, maroon fighters there. And he leaves arms with them, ammunition, gunpowder, supplies. He tells them that he'll come back, um, but he doesn't have enough ship space to really evacuate them as he leaves. And so the maroons are just kind of left now at this fort, heavily armed, but, but knowing that the Spanish don't really like them being there because there are Spanish slaves that are also a part of their group. And the Americans definitely don't want them to be there because they're encouraging more enslaved people to run away and they're uh, raiding plantations um, along the border and essentially just also killing white settlers. In April of 1816, General Andrew Jackson commanded the Spanish governor of Florida to destroy the fort at Prospect Bluff and to return the runaway slaves back to their owners. Dr. Justin Iverson. Eventually, their presence there in the, in the region will prompt uh, another U.S. invasion into Florida and leads up to this great big battle on July 27, 1816, in which um, American forces led by Colonel Duncan Clinch sail up the Apalachicola River, where this fort is located, and they begin an artillery barrage, and, and then one lucky cannon shot just hits this fort's magazine where all the gunpowder and, and weapons are stored, and it just creates this big explosion that kills most of everybody inside the fort. So about 200 people die, and another 70 are, are maimed. And that kind of ends the battle of Prospect Bluff, or Negro Fort. And the survivors who are left have to kind of flee and, and find safety and, and refuge elsewhere in Florida with other uh, Maroons who are still alive. And um, that's kind of the big exclamation point of the first Seminole War and, and the very, maybe the very end 
of the remnants of the uh, War of 1812. In 1818, Andrew Jackson ordered Fort Gadsden, named after Lieutenant James Gadsden, to be built on the ruins at Prospect Bluff. During the Civil War, Fort Gadsden was used as a Confederate outpost until a malaria outbreak forced the troops to abandon it. The story of Prospect Bluff highlights one of the most remarkable maroon communities in Atlantic history. The site of Prospect Bluff is listed in the National Register of Historic Places and still serves as a symbol of the maroon fight for freedom in Florida. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week and find us anytime at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.